I'll just start reading. So yeah, 1 Peter 3, 12 to 17. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I just want to pray for Colin before he comes up. Father, we thank you so much that Colin's here today um, to speak to us. Uh, thank you for what you have prepared in him this week uh, as he's been uh, praying and, and, and writing and uh, pouring over these words, Lord, in your, in your word. And I just pray um, that as he, he comes up and, and shares, Lord, that he would be really open to your voice, uh, any, any leading you give him today. And we pray that you would be speaking to each of us, everyone in this room today, Lord, no matter uh, where we've come from, what weeks we've had, Lord, we believe that you want to speak to us and we thank you so much for that. Um, so Lord, I, yeah, I pray for Colin that um, you would speak through him uh, and we thank you for this time together today. Amen. So good to be here with you again. I've been looking forward to this. I love coming here and uh, being with you folks. I was just saying to, I've, I've forgotten your name. Isn't that terrible, Rachel? Sorry, Rachel. I'm having real trouble. I forgot Zach's name this morning. I've got Rachel's now. So sorry. If I, if I do forget your name, I'm just getting old. So please forgive me if I ask you again. Um, I met quite a few people this, this year. Actually, I was in Poland. And in Poland, there are so many people with the same name. I just kind of try, are you a, a, are you a Jakub, are you a Magda, are you a Marta? And eventually you get there, but I can't do that here. So, uh, yeah, it's really great to be with you. Um, thank you for that reading we just had. Karis, isn't it? Karis. Oh, I got that one. Goodness. Uh, and I've just been, just really, when I was thinking about what I wanted to share tonight, to, to, to this morning, the Lord really focused me in on this one verse actually we're going to look in fact even on one word so we've read that reading before i do that, i want to set the context of peter's letter peter um, peter's letter it's not a long letter but it's specific so he says at the beginning of his letter who he's writing to and he's writing to god's chosen people who are scattered throughout the provinces of asia minor and he lists a number of different provinces now he's primarily writing to Jews, because the Jewish people were the ones who were scattered. They were in the diaspora. Obviously, he's also writing to the non-Jewish believers who had become to, have come to know Christ through their witness and through the witness of the apostles and the people who've gone out, the missionaries. But something to consider here. He's writing to a people who already know what it's like to stick out like sore thumbs in their communities around them. The Jews were people who were very obvious by their difference. 
They didn't go to the sacrifices of the Romans. They didn't go to the games. They didn't make the, the loyalty oath to the emperor. They said they would pray for the emperor. But actually, Julius Caesar, back in around 53, had allowed the Jews, because of the troubles and because of the challenges of their faith, he said, okay, we won't make you say the loyalty oath. We'll, we'll just let get you to say prayers for the emperor. So they prayed. But they were different. They dressed differently. They talked differently. They celebrated different feasts. And so already, as Jews, they were different. And obviously, as Jews, they were also subject to a certain amount of public disapproval because they didn't respect the Roman gods. They only respected the one god. So on the back of that comes the preaching and the good news of Messiah Jesus, Israel's Messiah, who has overcome death and who has offered to and has provided for his covenant to be broadened across the whole earth, across the whole earth. And so we're talking about Peter writing to a people who are living, who are swimming against the stream. They are swimming against the stream. And they're called to do that. They're called to do that. So that's the context of what I want to say this morning. But I want to home in this morning on chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3 and verse 15. Maybe, um, I don't know if we've got our first, we could go to the next slide maybe. Can you get the next slide? This is where technology no, we're going back. We're going, we're going back. No, back one. <laughs> back one. That's it. This one. I want to talk about this word, Greek word. Uh, a lot of people will pronounce it as hagios, but actually, you won't hear any Greek say hagios now. You'll hear it in Bible colleges and theological colleges and places where people are trying to say Greek. But actually, the the, the way a Greek would say it today is aios. Ayos. They, they, the, the G in the middle becomes a Y, Ayos. So some of you had heard of a place called Ayanapa. You ever heard of Ayanapa in Greece? Yeah, famous, isn't it? For all the wrong reasons. Um, so Ayanapa is, I think it's holy something, but it's saint something because they also use it for, for saint. So Ayos means holy. And in verse 15, it says... There are, well, there are various different translations. I think my translation here has, um, let me just read it. Uh, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Well, hmm. I think the old version has, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Others have, revere Christ. And it's one of those places where translators really struggled to get the right word. Because the word in Greek is actually in your hearts, he says in the original, ayasate, make holy Christ as Lord. Make holy, ayasate. No wonder the translators had trouble with it. How do you make Jesus holy? How do you make Christ holy? Surely he is holy. Surely there's no argument about it. Surely he's he'd been holy from the beginning. What, why, would you, why would you want to make Jesus holy? I want to borrow into that a bit and talk about what it means when Paul, when Peter says, make Jesus holy. He's already used the word holy several times in his letter. He talks in the opening phrases, he talks about being a holy people, that God has called us as a holy people. 
He then says, be holy. He quotes, he says, be holy as God is holy. Later on in chapter 2. He says it several times in his letter. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of holy. When you think of something or someone holy. Usually we think of someone of, of extreme purity. Extreme moral purity. And often it's connected with sainthood. So you saw things like people of saints, let's say, you know, all the different saints that there are in some churches that celebrate and make saints. But it's actually something more basic than that, something more real than that. And that's what I want to draw out this morning. Peter is a Jew. We've established that. <laughs> he's very Jewish. And he's writing to his people and the others who have accepted Jesus. So when Peter is thinking of the word holy, by the way, Peter hasn't got a New Testament, remember? But he has got an Old Testament, or he's got a, a Bible. He's got the Scriptures. He's got the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, which are the three parts of the Hebrew Scriptures. Except that Peter, when he was working across the empire, was probably talking to people who would have read their Bible in Greek. Because Greek was the common language of the empire, right up to Rome. So wherever you went from Jerusalem across to Rome, you would find people speaking Greek. Even in Rome, where Latin was the official language, people would still be speaking Greek. It was the business language. It was the, I was going to say, it was the English of its day. You know, English is becoming more and more of, a, of an international language. I've just been studying in the, in the Gallic College in Skye this week, and I'm doing the next step in my Gallic studies. But it's really amazing how the Gallic language has imported so many English phrases. And actually, when you listen to Gallic people speak, every so often they throw in an English phrase, because they can't, or they'll say English dates, or they'll say English numbers. Because English has so, become so pervasive, and you find that in every language. If you come from another nation, you'll probably find, I think probably in India people do it a lot, using a lot of English. So it, because it's the common, it's the lingua franca, it's the common language. Well, Latin and Greek, Greek was the common language of the Eastern Empire. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because 200 years before Jesus came, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, were translated into Greek. This happened in Alexandria in Egypt where the, the, ruler in, 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 the ruler in Alexandria wanted to have a big library, and he wanted to have these scriptures accessible to everyday people. So he asked, traditionally, he asked 72 elders of the Jewish people, known as, or they're actually known as the 70, um, or <laughs> this is why you'll sometimes see written in, in theological things, LXX, which is the Roman numerals for 70. You say, in the LXX. It was the, the writing of the 70. So they, they translated, these 70 translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that people who couldn't read Hebrew could have access to the scriptures. Especially when, as they were living in places where Hebrew wasn't spoken every day, they were forgetting Hebrew. And so they needed to be able to still connect with their scriptures in the language of their everyday life. So around the time of Peter and Jesus as well, all of those would have had access to the Greek scriptures. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because this word, aios, in Greek, actually was used to translate another word in Hebrew, which some of you might be familiar with. So this word, aios, everywhere in the Old Testament where you would find the Hebrew word for holy, the Greek word, aios, is used. 
Do you understand what I'm saying there? So Peter, as a Jew, would already have Ayos in his mind to be translating that word that was the original word. So this is the word in Hebrew. Some of you probably are very familiar with this one as well. The next slide. I always love doing language work with people. I love languages, their communication. Can we have the next slide? See if we can just get... Go back one. That's it? Okay. So the word in Hebrew is kadosh. Can you all say that? Kadosh. I like to get people to put other people's languages in their mouth, particularly English speakers, because we're so bad at speaking other people's languages. So kadosh. And when the angels in Isaiah 6 are crying before the Lord, they're saying kadosh, 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 Adonai Elohim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But it still doesn't quite give us the key. What is holy? Is it moral purity? Is it there's so holy, so saintly, so pure? Well, I'm going to shock you now. Okay, you ready for a shock? Um, because if you come with me to, we're going to look at Genesis. No, actually, I'll tell you what, we'll go back to, yeah, we'll go up to Genesis 2, first of all. Genesis 2 and verse 3. And this is the first time the word kadosh is used in the scriptures. And it says, God blessed the seventh day and he made it kadosh. He made it kadosh. Now, does that mean morally pure? Well, difficult to make a day morally pure. Uh, you know, difficult to see a day doing saintly things. It's a day. But he made it different. He made it special. He made it different to all the other days of the week. So we're beginning to get somewhere. Now, as I say, I'm going to shock you now, because if you go to Genesis 38, go a few more pages into Genesis. So stick with the first book in the Bible, but we'll go to Genesis 38. And uh, I'll find the right... Okay, so we're looking at 38 verse 15. Now, this is a really weird story. I'm not going to go into it too deeply. It's, a really, it's one of the weirdest stories in the scripture where Tamar, who is a, a, a young woman, or she's a, a young wife, she's, she's, been, she's not been able to have children by her husbands, plural, and therefore she's desperate to have children to continue the heritage of her husbands. And the only person she can think of to have sex with, to have children, is her father-in-law. Now, that's, as I say, really weird. What she does is she disguises herself as, and this is the shocking thing, she disguises herself as what Hebrew calls a Kedeshah. A Kedeshah. Now, yes, that word Kadosh is in there. It means a shrine prostitute. She disguised herself as a woman who was connected with the fertility cult of the times, and what the idea of that was, was that the, um, that the fertility cult saw the act of sexual union as being something that fructified, that made fruitful the earth. And so they would have sex with a shrine prostitute who was tied and who was completely surrendered to the god, small g, the non-god I call it, that she or he, because there were actually men as well who did this, they were serving. So they were so completely given, their bodies became the property of the non-gods that they were serving. 
Okay. Ah, now we're maybe beginning to understand a little more. Because kadosh, in that context, means someone who is surrendered for the purposes of God, non-God. So, I want to suggest that what the best translation I know, another translation I want to develop here, talking about um, Peter and what he's saying, because we've gone a long way from Peter, haven't we? But if we get the next slide, which was the, there we go, unrivaled. Unrivaled is what holy really means. Why? Because that person who gave their body, gave themselves to a non-God, they wouldn't support, they wouldn't, they wouldn't entertain worshipping anyone else. When God makes the Sabbath, when he makes the seventh day holy, he makes it unrivaled by any other day. And again and again and again through the scripture where you see Kadosh. So God is Kadosh because no one, nothing comes anywhere near him. He is so great that he sits above all heavens and anything you want to think about. He is higher. He is holy. And that's why the angels are saying, oh, you're so unrivaled. You're matchless. You're peerless. You're above compare. There is no one like you. Nothing comes near you, God. And that's what I love about this word, holy. And when I say it, I always think, God, you are just beyond anything I can imagine. And yet you connect with me through your spirit, through Jesus. So, are you getting the point? Are you getting the idea here? Are you getting what I'm saying? That when Paul says, make Jesus ayos, make Jesus kadosh, make Jesus Make Christ kadosh. Make Christ unrivaled in your heart. Doesn't that somehow change the feeling? Does that mean it doesn't mean that you you're going to do unholy things? It doesn't mean you're going to do bad things. No, it's the opposite. You're going to not let anything interfere with Jesus being the center of your being. Nothing else, nothing else rivaling him. Peter is actually talking about this in the context of integrity. Go back to that picture again of these Jews who are living, swimming against the stream. What a temptation there would have been to just not do that, not keep that Sabbath, you know, to, to maybe just eat that little bit of meat from the market that you know has been offered to an idol, to maybe go and burn incense, especially if you were under pressure. And Paul is obviously, sorry, I keep saying Paul, Peter is also writing to believers who are not Gentiles, who would have left behind the Roman cults, who would have left behind the emperor worship, who would have left behind all those eating of idol meats and all the other things. And so they were living a different way. But probably their families weren't. Maybe their families, maybe some of the people they knew were enticing them. Come back. Come back into the fold. Come back into the Roman way. Don't follow this weird God, this risen God. Don't follow him. And there would have been this pressure to conform to the ways of everyone around you. 
So Peter says, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be in trouble for what you're doing. You're going to get into trouble. People are going to say you're doing bad things when actually you're doing good things. But he says, if you suffer for the sake of doing good things, don't worry because Jesus actually said you will suffer. The world will not accept you. The world will want you to swim their way. I heard someone say the other day, actually, I really like this. Um, it's only dead fish that go with the stream. Can you think about salmon? You know, salmon are swimming against the stream. It's only dead fish that swim with the stream. So actually, burnt things which are alive are going. And we have to swim against the stream. I want to bring it right down to here and now. What a pressure there is on us to fit in. To not say, Jesus is Lord. To not say, this is what he commands us to do. This is what he wants us to do. This is what following Jesus is about. This is, our, this is what it means to take up your cross and follow him. It's easier to just go with the flow. It's easier to just swim, just let the water carry you. It's easier to watch that stuff, to see those things, to say those things, to accept that way of life, to accept that, you know, accept society around you, to water it down. It's easier. But Peter says, in your hearts, let Jesus be unrivaled. I wonder what rivals there are in our lives to Jesus. There are rivals in my life. I don't mean that I don't put Jesus first, but there's always something that's wanting my attention more than Jesus. Come on, Colin, you need to do this. You need to do that. This is important. That's important. Come and do this. Come and do that. Don't say that. Don't say this. And I'm constantly having to say no to the rivals, to the idols, to Jesus. And so I can safely say this morning, when I ask you that question, what are the rivals to Jesus in your life? That I'm actually asking the right question because we all have rivals in our lives. We all have things, people, anything can be a rival. What's quite surprising, what I found surprising, is that church can be a rival to Jesus. What? But it's happening more and more. When the church says, and I don't mean necessarily my own community or, or this community, but I'm just thinking what's called church in general is saying things that is incompatible with the lordship of Jesus. I say, I can't do that. I cannot allow church to rival Jesus. I have to go with him. I'm part of a, and you're part of actually, I want to include you in on this as well. We are part of a long tradition in the UK called dissent. You know what dissenters are? Dissenters were a bunch of people who said, we are not going the king's way, i.e. the human king. Here in Scotland, in England, other places, Ireland, everywhere, people said, we don't believe the king has the right to tell us what to do in our faith. Many people here in this city shed their blood next door. There's Greyfriars Kirkyard. We probably could almost touch the memorial that tells us that a thousand people laid down their lives rather than say that, that the king is the head of the church. Dissenters were those who will not go 
the way of the ruling ideology. They will not say no to Jesus as Lord because they know Jesus is Lord and they dare not bow the knee to another. And those are called traditionally dissenters. One of the best known dissenters in British history is John Bunyan. John Bunyan is an amazing character. John Bunyan was a, a tinker. <laughs> he was a sort of a, a traveling salesman. He wasn't a minister. He, wasn't, he hadn't trained. He hadn't been to any university or college. He basically just preached the gospel wherever he found, wherever God found him, the place. And, and especially in the times of, the, um, the, of Cromwell and so on, the times after the revolution, the English Revolution, he was found taking small groups of people and sharing Jesus with them and baptizing them as adults, baptizing them by immersion. He himself was baptized by immersion. Of course, when King Charles came back to the throne in 1660, Bunyan was in trouble, big trouble, because he was seen as not conforming to the uh, state church. And so he was imprisoned, not once, but several times. They had a wife and several children, and they suffered because he was in prison, because he wouldn't say, the king is Lord. He wouldn't say, I will go to the state church. He wouldn't say it. And also, they, they forbade him to preach. They forbade him to share the gospel. So what happened? He went to prison, and in prison, he had a vision, had a dream. You can read it at the beginning of his book, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress which he wrote in Bedford Jail. And it was basically God revealing to him the journey of the believer in Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that that um, book has become a classic of Christian literature. And many people would know it. I hope some of you have read it. And by the way, if you haven't read it or you don't know it, can I recommend that you look on YouTube? There's a great animation of the Pilgrim's Progress on YouTube um, that you can find. So the Pilgrim's Progress, just look for it. You should find the animation. And uh, it's a great story. And basically, it's saying how this man leaves behind the world that is trying to pull him in, and he makes for the cross, and he makes for heaven. He makes for Jesus. He wants Jesus to be his Lord. But he goes through many difficult places. One of the... One of the uh, let me go back to yesterday. I, I came into town yesterday... Um, I was actually I was on Forest Road looking for a Gallic conversation group. It was supposed to be one meeting in the cafe, but it wasn't meeting yesterday. And I found myself sitting outside the cafe um, looking at the people and looking at the city around me and feeling really out of place, feeling really strange in my own city. And my mind suddenly went, and this is what the connection is with John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan writes a, a chapter in that book called Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is the place where the two, um, the, there are two uh, heroes of, the, of this piece. There's a Christian and there's Faithful. And they've teamed up and they arrive in Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair is full of entertainment and full of uh, seduction and full of rivals, if you like, to Jesus. And when they arrive, at first they seem to be welcome, but then people tell them to buy their stuff. Buy my stuff. And they say, we don't, we don't want your stuff. We have another who satisfies us. 
and then the people of the town start to turn against them. Why don't you want to buy our stuff? What have you got, got, got against our stuff? And then they start to accuse them of being seditious, of being spies or of being um, interlopers. And at the end of the day, they're brought before the judge and there's this mock trial and faithful is condemned to death. And he dies, he's martyred for his faith. while Christian actually escapes and he continues on his journey. And as I sat there yesterday, I thought, I'm in Vanity Fair. I'm in Vanity Fair. I'm looking at a society that is going crazy. A society that's lost its bearings. A society that is all about stuff, is shallow, is, 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 I just was uncomfortable in it. I'm not against it. I love people, but I don't love some of the stuff that's going on. Don't have to. And that's why it's so good this morning to be here and have the doors open. Actually sing. Jesus. Jesus matters. Jesus is the most important thing in all of this stuff that is going on. And by the way, I'm not against it all because I know there's some good stuff happening. So don't worry, I'm not dismissing all. I'm just saying about that, how I felt at that moment. I felt so foreign in that place. And then my mind went to Christian and faithful and Vanity Fair. And the temptation is, the pull is, come on, buy our stuff. This is good stuff. This is lovely stuff. This is, but it's actually about as deep as a credit card. I sometimes use that. It's as deep as a credit card. It's so surface. It's so shallow. And underneath, there is so much heartache and so much need and so much loneliness and so much illness. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we've got to make Jesus unrivaled in our hearts because he is the answer He's the answer for the people around us. He's not a lifestyle. He's not a life choice. He is the one. We were singing this morning about Jesus being Savior. Savior, he can move the mountains. You know, when you say Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua, you're saying rescuer, Savior. I love the fact that actually when Jews pray their daily prayer, they're constantly mentioning Yeshua. Because they're constantly talking about salvation in their daily prayers. Three times a day, they're praying every, 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 few, every few minutes, they're praying, Yeshua, Yeshua Ti, my, my, my salvation. But it's actually, he's in there. And that's why when you say Jesus, you're saying rescuer, savior. And of course, when, he said, when they said the first announcement of Jesus' name, you will call his name Yeshua because he will Yeshua his people. And we, don't, we miss that. When Simeon looks into the eyes of the little baby in his arms and he says, Lord, let your servant now go in peace because my eyes have seen your Yeshua. My eyes have seen your salvation. And this is why Jesus needs to be, just the next, um, the next slide if we can. This is why we need to have Jesus as absolutely, sent. oh yes, here we are. So I want to translate it, in your hearts, make Christ the unrivaled Lord. Make him unrivaled. Let him be the center. Sorry, next slide again. We're not dwelling on that one. Next slide again. We, uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Poland, as I mentioned, and I was doing a youth camp there. 
And this just came to me in, um, when, when I was preparing. And the theme of the week, which I, I was given, was Jesus Central. And being a train fan, I, I, I'm, I'm always thinking about railways. And I suddenly saw this station sign, <laughs> uh, although it was in Polish, Jesus Central, Jesus Centralny in Polish. But so we sort of made a Polish station sign, which is a little solid blue with white writing on it. But this is like, I just thought this, oh, this, this will hopefully embed itself that Jesus is the start and the finish of our journey. Jesus is the one who's in the middle. Everything comes from and to him. He's the terminus. He's the one we're aiming for. Let nothing take his place. Nothing and no one. Nothing and no one. Because he's worthy. He is worth it. I was listening to a friend of mine singing, uh, she's a Polish musician, and there's one song where she sings that really touched me. And she sings, because for you, my beloved, everything is worth it. Because for you, my beloved, everything is worth it. And he is, he is worth it. He's worth it, worth everything. He's worth the fight. He's worth the, he's worth the, the, the contradiction. He's worth even the persecution. So let's ask again, what's the biggest rival in our lives for the affection of Jesus? Because our affection, our love belongs to him. No one else. Of course, if you're married, he will share you with your husband, with your wife. <laughs> and I love that fact. If you're, if you're not married and you're hoping to be married one day, my greatest encouragement to you is make Jesus the be-all and end-all of your life and one day he can share you with someone else. And he will, because that's what he does. He loves to do that, if that's what your heart's desire is. But make him first in your life and then he can share you. So even our spouse doesn't take Jesus' place. I've found that in this couple of years since my wife went to be with Jesus. I've needed him. I haven't had her comfort and her with me, but I know, have known the spirit of Jesus walking through that with me. No one else like it. No one else like it. I want to try and sing a song. I'm going to have to transfer up there. This is a song I wrote years ago. I mean, I don't know how many years ago. I, I'm, uh, but actually, the, it was the middle verse that really just hit me as I was preparing this. I thought, yeah, this really says what I want to leave us with. So hopefully we can sing it. Can I give this, I'll give this mic to someone? Shall I use that one, Sam? So it's a very simple, we'll soon pick it up. By the way, the first verse is really looking at Psalm 139, when the psalmist says, hem me in with your presence, before and behind. You close me in. You're never far away from me. When we get to that place with Jesus, we don't need anyone else.
We're saying no to everything that demands our attention that is not you. Jesus, we thank you for you who saved us. You've rescued us. You've given us everything. There's nothing in this world that can rival you. Yet we're so aware, Lord, that every day things demand our attention over you. But Lord, we say no. We want to be those today who make you unrivaled as Lord in our hearts, make you holy, make you above everything, make you matchless, make you peerless, that nothing comes near you. And if you're here this morning, and maybe this is news to you, maybe you've never realized how important Jesus is, and the life, the life unlimited he offers you, life that isn't just about heaven, it's about now, it's about living life to the full now. He offers you his love. 
He offers you everything. Nothing else will give you the peace and the sense of connection with God that he gives. And so I invite you, if you're here this morning and you want to be in on this, you want to be part of this love that God has given, do speak to someone. Ask someone to pray with you. Say, I need to know more about this. Even if you're just inquiring, we'd all be really happy to tell you more. But Jesus, for those of us who know you are walking with you already, forgive us, Lord, that we put so many things ahead of you. And this morning, we just want to say, Jesus Christ, I want you to be unrivaled in my heart. Will you say that to him this morning? Knowing that there are going to be challenges, knowing even tomorrow morning when you wake up, there's going to be something that will rival him. But make that your intention. Thank you, Colin. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it is so amazing to get to learn new things and uh, learn a new word, kadosh. Did, it, did I get that right? Kadosh. Yeah. Thank you, Colin. And yeah, uh, it's so amazing to be, to get that insight of how to have Jesus as the unrivaled uh, presence in our, in our, day-to-day -day walk and uh, we are so grateful uh, that we're able to receive it and I think it is for us to be able to put it deep into our heart and understand how immensely important that is and there is there is that great value also that we can get from having Jesus as that unrivaled you know just being that unrivaled God in our hearts and in our lives. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I think we have the worship team straight. Thank you. Yeah, if the ministry team um, wants to just get set up. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Colin. That was, that was amazing. Really, really great. Um, and yeah, if, if you're feeling like you've, you're experiencing some of these rivals, experience